a student asked anthropologist Margaret Mead for the earliest signs of civilization in a, a given culture. He expected the answer to be a, a clay pot or perhaps a, a fish hook or a grinding stone. But her answer surprised him. She said the, the earliest sign of civilization was a healed femur. And the authority, the anthropologist Margaret Mead explained that no mended bones are found where the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, reigns. A healed femur shows that someone cared. Someone had to do that injured person's hunting or, or gathering until that leg healed. It's evidence of compassion uh, is that first sign of civilization. The, the term gold standard suggests that the paragon of, of excellence. And Jesus set the gold standard for compassion. Compassion, by definition, is entering into someone else's misfortune or pain. It's a sympathetic concern that for the misfortunes of others. Compassion is unselfish. It is externally focused. It is others-oriented. And no one has ever shown compassion better than Jesus. Jesus calls us to carry forth the standard of compassion that, that he set. So today I'm going to divide my message into two halves. The, the first consideration deals with setting the standard. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus dem demonstrated compassion to all people. Uh, anyone he encountered, whether young or old, rich or poor, healthy or sick, godly or godless, he just loved all people. And Jesus had this powerful appeal that, that radiated out from him, this genuine compassion for all. He set the standard for showing compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus healed a woman who had suffered for 12 years with a bleeding disorder. He restored to life a young girl who was dead. He healed two blind men and a demon-possessed man. And all of those events provide the context for the next verses that we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Farther ahead in the 14th chapter of Matthew, we read about the execution of John the baptizer, a, a cousin of Jesus. And the loss of this friend severely impacted Jesus. He attempted to get away for some time of reflection, for some time of mourning. And at that time, as he got into the boat on the Sea of Galilee, this massive crowd began to follow on foot. And again, we see Jesus in compassion, serving the needs and hurts of others and putting them ahead of his own pain. And we pick up in Matthew 14, verse 13. When Jesus had heard what had happened, the, the death of, of John the baptizer, he withdrew by boat privately to a, a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. More compassion is on the way as he, he set the standard for us. 
And a few chapters later in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, Jesus encountered two blind men. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a a large crowd followed him. And two blind men were, were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. I doubt that's probably how the crowd said it. It probably wasn't, shh, hey, please, Jesus is coming by. It's like, would you guys please shut up? Jesus is walking by. They didn't silence them. Instead, they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped, and he called them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. I mean, this is our one shot. We've tried for years to get healed, and no doctor can help us. We've prayed, and nothing's happened. You're you're our only chance. You're our last resort. Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. The Apostle John's biography of Christ records that Jesus was teaching when interrupted by a throng of people who cast the woman at his feet. We alluded to this verse last week. Uh, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to execute her. What do you say, Jesus? And their concern was not with morality or, or justice. They only brought one of the parties who had been caught in adultery. Where's the man? This was entrapment for Jesus to try to see if he would be soft on sin, if he would condone it or look the other way, and they could say he's breaking the law of Moses. So this was a a sting operation. It was a setup, and and they were were intentionally using this poor woman as the the bait here to to entrap Jesus in, in breaching the Old Testament law. Verse 7 says, when they kept on questioning him, they're just drilling him. What do you think, Jesus? What are you going to do? Are you going to let her get away with that? What do you think about that? He said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. If any of you are perfect, then you're right. You have a legal prerogative to execute her. Are any of you perfect? Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has, has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus struck that, that perfect balance, that, that equilibrium of, of truth, and grace. And some today are misguided in their belief that we mustn't oppose sin directly at the risk of, of being seen as unloving or judgmental or homophobic or out of touch or narrow minded. Jesus dealt directly with those who were caught in sinful lifestyles, but he did so gently, not harshly, with a redemptive compassion. He called them in love to to leave their lives of sin and live in obedience to his word, to his will, to his way. If you knew that there 
was a Jeep parked at the top of a, a very steep mountain incline in this windy road down below, and your friend was getting ready to get behind the wheel of that Jeep, and you knew that the Jeep had no brakes. Uh, and if you were to just sit back and say, well, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be Debbie Downer and, and tell him that there's no brakes. Uh, you know, he'll just have to figure that out as he's going over the side of the, the cliff, but I don't want to you know, really butt in. And, and uh, if you love your friend, then it dictates that you cannot be silent. Love dictates our response. And, and Jesus spoke up and he stepped in. He didn't condone wrongdoing, and, and he didn't sanitize sin and say, oh, that's, that's okay, it's, it's not a big deal. He instead called people to a better life. And the result of his compassion was demonstrated in, in lives that were changed forever. Jesus set that standard for showing compassion, loving people, calling them to repentance, and he calls for us to carry on that same standard, that same task that he began. So we who are trying to follow his example now have been tasked with sustaining the standard. And that's, that's the, the second half of this message. When, once when teaching, Jesus was asked a question about to whom should we show compassion? Who is my, my neighbor? And in response, Jesus told the story of the, the Good Samaritan. Interestingly, it's never referred to in Scripture as being a parable, and many scholars believe that this was an actual event that had occurred recently in Jericho. We pick up the story there in Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and going down means the elevation was declining, down to Jericho's at the, at where the Dead Sea is, at, at sea level, the lowest point on the earth. He said, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes. And we can sell these. That's, you know, get the clothes off before we beat the guy up because uh, we can sell those clothes. We don't want them getting ripped or, or torn. And they beat him up, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This might be a trap. Uh, I'm not going to get involved again. And then so to a Levite who came Someone else that worked, worked there in the, in the temple, the family of Levi, he, he came to the same place, saw him, and he also passed by on the other side. But, but a Samaritan, and Samaritans were looked down upon because they were the, the, the product of uh, the Assyrians intermarrying with the Jews. So they were viewed as uh, a half-breed. And, and because of, of that, the, the Jews looked down on them and and so this Samaritan travels by, and he sees the man, and it says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He disinfected the, the cuts, and cleaned them out, and then bandaged and wrapped them. He put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, about the equivalent of two days' wages, and he gave it to the innkeeper and said, hey, uh, let me pay it forward. Uh, look after this guy. And when I return from my business trip, if his bill exceeds that, then I'll, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that, that you have. And then 
Jesus looked at those who had been questioning him and he said, Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, Got it. Go and do likewise. And so he told this story to define who is my neighbor. Did they have to look like me? Did they have to be the same race that I am? Do they have to be the same economic level that, that I live at? No, your, your neighbor's anyone in need. And, and so Jesus set that standard, and then he tells us, now you carry it on while I'm, I'm not on the earth. Go and do likewise. That, that's our assignment. Your, your homework uh, for this week is, is a simple to-do task of, of seeing people in need and showing compassion to them in the name of Jesus. And the opportunities happen all around us all the time. Yesterday, uh, I was over on the east side, and, and we had stopped and eaten at City Barbecue. And, boy, it smells good just walking in and, and right, you know, in the parking lot. It smells great. And after we had come out, there was a, a guy who approached me and said, hey, could you give me a dollar or two? I'd, I'd like to get some lunch. I thought, well, yeah, he's, he's smelling that. I, I said, I'll be glad to buy your lunch. Could I, could I go inside and get your lunch for you? He goes, well, yeah, that'd be great. So we went inside, and... I said, now the pulled pork's really good, and the, the brisket's great. You know, he goes, I think I'd like a pulled pork sandwich. So, you know, he, he ordered, and, and they said, is there anything else? He goes, no, that's all I got. Well, you need to get some fries with that. You better get some fries. He goes, well, okay, I'll, I'll take some fries. He said, you, you'll want to drink, right? You're going to need something to drink with that, too. He goes, well, okay, yeah, I guess I'll take a drink. And, and the, the girl said, anything else? And he said, no, no, that's all. I said, later you're going to want some dessert. And I said, we've got some really good desserts here. And. And uh, I said, you know, look at that triple layer chocolate cake. And uh, she goes, we have uh, pretzel s'mores that are really good right now, too. And uh, he goes, well, uh, okay. And he goes, I, I guess I'll take the chocolate cake. And then the girl got in the spirit of things. And so she reached over. She goes, here. She moved it around. She goes, here, take the bigger one. This one's fresher. And she gave him a, a bigger cut of the cake and one that hadn't been sitting out there as long. And so... Um, I, I told him God bless him and asked him his name, told him I'd be praying for him and, and he's looking for a job and, and uh, his name's Andrew if you want to join me in praying for, for Andrew. So these opportunities happen to us all the time but sometimes we're kind of like the priest or the Levite and we're in a hurry we're on task, we're concerned about getting involved and, and we pass by on the other side of the road. So your homework this week is when that opportunity smacks you don't miss it and 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 serve someone in the name of jesus and and love them and dan and jessica engel's daughter audrey has always had a jesus heart it's been obvious in her her whole young life and she was a student in my wife's preschool and audrey demonstrated just a spiritual sensitivity well beyond her years when she was six she was already carrying out the assignment of sustaining the standard of compassion. I'm going to read her mother's words here. She said, Audrey has always had such a big heart. She's been wise beyond her years when it comes to really loving others well in so many ways. So we weren't too surprised when we learned of how she had started taking care, uh, taking especially good care of another boy in her kindergarten class who, as she said, just needs a little extra help. This little boy joined her class midway through the first semester, and 
Jessica said, we started to notice that when we would pick Audrey up from school, she would walk out and walk him out to his grandma, leading him by the hand, always making sure he got safely to his grandmother before giving him a big hug and, and telling him she'd see him tomorrow. We found that extremely sweet, but we also realized that it brought the, the boy great comfort. Her, her role in helping him has grown over the school year. She helps him in class. Her teachers allow her to be the one that takes him throughout the school building to his different appointments and therapies. And, and overall, she just looks out for him in so many ways. He's such a beautiful, sweet boy, and, and she loves him dearly. Now, Audrey reminds us that it really doesn't matter what your age is or your qualifications. There are opportunities around each of us every day to love people well. It doesn't have to be hard or complicated. I love that story. I love Audrey's heart of compassion. Showing compassion really isn't rocket science. Just so we wouldn't miss it, Jesus broke this assignment down with this story that illustrates that we should respond to others who are in need. Jesus helped define compassion with the example of the Good Samaritan. He further parsed it out for us when he gave the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you, Luke 6, 31. After Jesus' return to heaven, his brother James further described the, the quality of compassion, referring to it as the royal law. And James, after all, grew up with Jesus. He had seen his brother demonstrate daily the compassion that so defined the earthly ministry of Jesus. And James wrote in James 2.8, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Again, if we have trouble picturing that, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6.2, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Ian O'Gorman was a fifth grader at Lake Elementary School in Oceanside, California. He was undergoing chemotherapy for lymphoma, and he faced with that the prospect of having his hair fall out in clumps. So he had his head shaved. And 13 boys in his class also had their heads shaved so Ian wouldn't feel out of place. Ten-year-old Kyle Hanslick started it all. He, he talked to some of the other boys, and before long, they all trekked over to the barber shop. And Kyle said, the last thing we would want is for him not to fit in. We just wanted to make him feel better. The Good Samaritan, the Golden Rule, the Law of Christ, they all involve compassion. Love God, love people, impact the world. In the chorus of the song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. There's a, a stanza that says, we will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. It was said of the early Christians, behold how they love one another. And we want to replicate that first century care and concern for each other. We don't want anyone to feel overlooked or to slip through the cracks. And it's a, a tall order 
that requires each one of us looking out in compassion for others. The more we all become like Jesus, the easier this becomes. Over time, it can develop into a natural, instinctive, reflexive response that reflects the nature of Christ to all we encounter as we go through our days. You remember in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the verse says that they took note that these men had been with Jesus, spending time with him, observing his interactions with all people. It provided this learning laboratory that was the greatest internship program possible. They were being mentored, directly discipled by Jesus himself, and it marked them for life. It affected, it influenced, it changed them profoundly. And likewise, the more time that we spend with Jesus and his word, with his people and study, the more time we spend with him in prayer, the more compassion we will each show. In his book, Living Beyond the Limits, Franklin Graham, son of of Ruth and Billy Graham, tells a story called Helping the Hurting. I love this example of compassion from the Graham family and from their minister, Calvin Thielman, who was married to my dad's cousin. Jimmy Baker and his wife, Tammy Faye, were very visible tele-evangelists back in the 1980s. Their, Their TV church empire collapsed when Jimmy was sent to prison for financial wrongdoings. Jimmy wrote a book apologizing for his greed later, and he entitled it, I Was Wrong. Franklin Graham relates, Jim's 45-year sentence was reduced to eight years, and he was ultimately released to a halfway house in Asheville, North Carolina, after serving five years. The Sunday after Jim left the Federal Correctional Institution in Georgia, Franklin said, I I was scheduled to preach at my parents' home church in in Montreat, just outside of Asheville. I I contacted Jim's attorney and asked him to extend an invitation for Jim to uh, attend the service. The the attorney was skeptical that that Jim would be comfortable accepting, but I assured him that Jim would be well-received. I'll seat him right next to Mama, I thought. Nobody will dare say a word about him being there if he's sitting with her. And Dr. Calvin Thielman, Franklin said, my parents' minister and my boyhood minister, is a straight-shooting, slow-talking Texan. I I called Calvin to ask if he would foresee a problem with Jim coming. No problem at all, he said. He's welcome. Calvin, do you think you'll get any flack? No way. And even if I do, so what? Right is right. And inviting Jim to church is the right thing to do. That's what I always have loved about Calvin. He was never much for political correctness. Franklin continued, I'm grateful that I was raised in a home where the example of reaching out to the downcast was evident. I remember watching my mother and father offering a helping hand to those who made mistakes and were truly repentant. Jim had only been out of prison for one day when his lawyer brought him to the Montreat Presbyterian Church. I had an assistant, Brian Willis, bring Jim to Calvin's office in the back of the church, and I felt for Jim. He was nervous and fidgety, like he didn't belong. His eyes darted around the room as if he couldn't focus on any one thing. I finally asked him if there was something that was wrong. He said, Franklin, after being 
for years cooped up behind bars. It's like seeing the outside world for the first time. I'm amazed by the beauty of it all. Calvin put his arms around Jim and hugged him and welcomed him. We had a chance for a private visit before church. We prayed together. Calvin asked Jim if there was any one thing that stuck out in his mind about his prison experience. Jim broke down and cried. And through his sobs, he said, Franklin and others came to visit me in prison. You'll never know what it means when someone comes to visit you in such a horrible place. Franklin said, I felt rebuked because I hadn't done more. He goes on, the Bible tells us to visit those in prison. The Bible doesn't say visit only the non-guilty. It says visit those in prison, period. If we want to touch the heart of God and walk in step with him, we have to take him at his word. And where does he walk? Through prison wards, in the ditches, in the gutters of this world, not just in ivory palaces. Remember, God's son was, was born in a stable. Jim was a broken man and, and completely repentant. I determined on the spot that I would do everything possible to help him. And as we talked about the logistical requirements of his early release, I said, Jim, let us help you with a place to live, and, and we can find a car for you to use. Jim pulled me aside and said, Franklin, you don't need me. I'm afraid my old baggage could hurt you. If people find out you're doing this for me, it might tarnish your reputation. I'm a convicted felon. I looked Jim straight in the eyes and said, Jim, you're my friend. You were my friend before and you're my friend now. And besides, if no one likes it, that's their problem. The way I saw it, the, the ministry arms of Samaritan's Purse, which is led by Franklin Graham, had been strengthened by Jim in the years past. He had contributed so much to our work and to others, the least we could do was help him once he got out of prison. As Jim began to regain composure, I said, Brian will escort you to to sit next to Mother, and she's looking forward to you being here. She's invited you and your son Jamie over for dinner at the house after the service, and we'll, we'll talk more then. Jim thanked me, slipped into the back of the church, for the most part, unnoticed. In my opening remarks that morning, I I looked out into the faces of the congregation. I said, most of you have read in the papers that Jim Baker has been released to a halfway house here in the Asheville area. I shared my recollections of what Jim had done for Samaritan's Purse years ago, and what he had done for missionaries in Africa, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars to build one of the most modern medical hospitals in, in all of Africa. The same Jim Baker who helped build that hospital is visiting with us today. I pointed toward the back. He's sitting with Mama. Jim, I'd like for you to stand. Jim hesitantly stood, and this conservative Southern Presbyterian church broke in to sustain the applause welcoming Jim. Jim nodded with tears in his eyes, quickly sat down. Mama reached over, patted him on the hand, reassuring him of our love and support. Following the service, Mama and I took Jim and Jamie back home to Little Piney Cove, just a a crooked mile or so from the church. We sat down in Mama's kitchen to enjoy a typical North Carolina Sunday meal, fried chicken, pork and beans, hush puppies, that's deep fried cornmeal for those who ain't from the South, (laughs) potato salad, coleslaw, and, and buttermilk biscuits. It was fun watching Jim feast on the Southern cooking. He didn't know what to pick up first. He started laughing. Mrs. Graham, in prison, we didn't get any choices. We ate what was put in front of us. I look at this feast, and I want it all. 
Mama grinned and said, well, you can just have it all. We all did a pretty good job devouring everything in sight. We especially enjoyed the fellowship around the table. As Mama was serving dessert, she asked Jim for his address, and he reached into his pocket and pulled out a creased paper envelope in which he kept his addresses. What's that? Mama asked. My wallet, Jim answered with a laugh. You know, Mrs. Graham, prisoners are not allowed to have billfolds. Just a minute, Mama said. She left the table. She walked into the bedroom, and she returned a few moments later, and she handed one of Daddy's wallets to Jim. He was visibly shaken. A fallen minister, convicted of financial wrongdoing, was being handed Billy Graham's billfold. It was a touching moment. Franklin said, to this day, Jim still carries that wallet. I saw him pull it out during an interview with Larry King. Jesus set the standard for compassion. He's counting on you to carry forward his compassion today. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, Thank you for sending your son to show us how to show compassion. His example shows us the way. It paints a picture for us of what true compassion looks like. And a picture is worth a thousand words. Lord, today there are many within the reach of each of us who need to know how much you you love them and care for them. This week, may they see and sense your love as it is demonstrated through us. May we paint a picture for them that will draw them to want to know you better. We pray in the name of Jesus, the gold standard of compassion. Amen.